Before we get to today's show, let me tell you about HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you keep your customers happy can feel impossible. Like try to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at the networking event. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. It brings together service and success together on one platform. With AI-powered help desk and chatbots to handle your frontline support tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Grain, your podcast for all things growth, marketing, and entrepreneurship. I am your co-host, Kit Bodner. I am joined by my fearless co-host from across the pond, Kieran Flanagan. Kieran, what is up, man? All good. Hot, sunny. Living that Irish dream. I love it. Kieran, we had a special guest here today. We are joined by Patrick Woods, who is the CEO of Orbit, which is an amazing community startup. And we are going to deep dive into community today. How do you build a community effort to kind of complement your go-to-market is the core topic of the day. We are going to get deep, deep into that community topic. Patrick, welcome, welcome to Marketing Against the Grain. Thanks, Kip. Thanks, Kieran. So happy to be here and excited to dig into all things community and marketing with the both of you today. Patrick, we came across an amazing article you wrote on future.com. But before we get into that, I would love it if you would just like give us the 30 seconds of how did you get into community? You know, like how did we get to here so that then we can kind of unpack everything from there? Yeah, it started probably on the personal side of things. I used to produce a few events uh, in my hometown of Memphis, Tennessee, uh, kind of weekly cross between networking, young singles, entrepreneurship, dating, kind of like a sort of mashup of people and ideas. And then over the course of my career, made my way into the wonderful world of startups. I uh, worked for a company called Keen.io. Keen had a huge developer community, and that's where my co-founder Josh and I actually met. And it's where we both fell in love with the role of community as a value driver for both the company and the community members. We learned a lot at Keen uh, about what to do and what not to do. <laughs> After that, Josh and I worked for a couple of different places and then started a consulting practice around 2018 in the developer relations, developer community space. And that sort of brought us up to the sort of modern era of Orbit because we worked with a couple dozen companies, went really deep with hundreds of leaders in the space and, and realized that community as a discipline, as a, as a functional area inside of businesses, was really sort of coming into its own. And at the same time, there was still no tooling to help these functional areas emerge and scale and operationalize. So, you know, marketing teams have great tools, sales teams have great tools, uh, community, DevRel, these folks were all using spreadsheets. And it, it seemed like a big miss for us, both for the individuals we were working with, but for the companies they were working with as well. So we started Orbit on the idea that the, the sort of modern go-to-market stack has evolved quite a bit uh, in the past decade or so as consumers, individuals have more power, they want to adopt software versus buy it directly from someone. And that really the underlying mental models and data models need to be reimagined as well. Mm. And so, yeah, fast forward to today, we've got thousands of customers managing something like 35 million community members across all their channels. So we're learning a lot from our amazing customers who have great communities of their own. For everybody listening, you know this is not our first show on community. If you've listened to Marketing Against the Grain at all, we have a lot of heated debates and topics around community. And Kieran, I loved Patrick's article that I mentioned a few minutes ago on future.com. And Kieran, I want to kick it over to you to kind of lead today's conversation. I know that there was some things in that article that really stood out that we wanted to discuss, debate, and like kind of basically try to package up for our listeners to think about how they should better continue to evolve their point of view around community. 
community and their own businesses. I wonder, Patrick, because you do a good job of this in the article is defining what community is, which seems kind of really basic, right? <laughs> but today you just see a lot of things being conflated as community, like everything is community or only a small portion of it is community. And I think audience gets conflated as community. Could you give our listeners, like, how would you define community for them so they can take that on board and start to think about those two things separately? Yeah, you're exactly right. Community can mean everything and nothing at all. Yes. Yeah. You know, your local knitting group can be a community. Your massive open source project like Kubernetes is a community. What do they have in common? How do we use this word? So we created this sort of like three-part heuristic, if you will, for trying to segment and define different community types. And for me, it's important to think about what do the members of this community expect when they show up? And I think that's a helpful way to sort of dissect the different parts. And so I think there's actually three buckets. There's communities of product, practice, and play. So communities of play are folks coming together to do something fun. It could be your knitting group, your basketball team, folks coming together to watch soccer, NBA top shot. There's lots of examples of communities that are for fun. Like the main thing is just meeting people, hanging out. A community of practice, and in a community of practice, the community members are showing up to level up a skill or a discipline. So think a meetup for folks that are really interested in product management or a, a Slack group for CTOs. They're there to, to network, to level up their skills, to meet other people, and to get better at a discipline. And then the third is communities of product. And so in, in that case, the, the folks are showing up to get better at a tool or a set of tools. So this might be a meetup for folks who are Photoshop users or people coming together to, I mean, Orbit has a community of our own and they, our users want to come and talk about how to use a tool, how to get better, how to get jobs using the tool. And so for most companies, you typically see that they either build a community of product or a community of practice or a blend of right. both. Community of play is not hyper relevant often for, for businesses. There's often some element of play, which is great. But what we talk to our customers and our sort of community about is trying to figure out which one you're doing and building programs and setting goals around, you know, are you trying to build a community of product or a community of practice or how are you allocating your resources across those two? What is it exactly we're trying to do here? What are we trying to offer to these people in the community? Yeah, I think community of play is much more like a B2C thing. There is an argument to me that community of play has somewhat been brought into the business context through Web3 because communities of owners are more like speculators and they come together because they're passionate about a coin. There's a lot of that same things in those communities. I think that's a really good articulation. That's kind of like how we think of it and how we've described it before on the pod. And so one of the things we really wanted to get into was how would you describe the go-to community team? Like we have a go-to-market teams. I think one of the pitches that you were making is, hey, community needs to grow up. We need to think of this kind of go-to community team. Are you putting this in the world because you think community-led growth is not a good terminology or you think it's just a different way to describe something like community-led growth? Yeah, so what we've seen is that a healthy community, a thriving community for a business, actually it de-risks and accelerates every part of a business. So it makes everything easier from go-to-market, which is kind of the obvious one, but also product development, recruiting. The community can be seen as an R&D testing ground for marketing concepts. And when we think about our best customers and the, the folks who we have a lot of respect for, they're able to sort of span the organization and help accelerate basically every functional area, uh, almost like a power-up for the whole company. And so the concept of community-led growth is very useful and pithy for evangelizing kind of the idea that maybe community mm-hmm. can do some stuff beyond just support ticket deflection. 
there's a risk that it doesn't tell the full story and it actually pigeonholes community as just yet another top of funnel, quote unquote, sort of channel. Right. And so when when I think about, you know, the go to community strategy, it's trying to put GTC on the same level as GTM conceptually inside of companies. And one of the points I make in the article is like, how big is your go to market team? And and the answer is always like it's, you know, hundreds or thousands of people, tons of sales reps and SDRs and marketing people. And then how big is your go to community team? And most companies would say even the ones with thousands of sales reps would say maybe five people maybe 10, you know, on the larger side. And so the sort of first order of business, I think for me and, and the GTC versus GTM framing is really just providing a conceptual framework to have the conversation around the relative distribution of headcount and budgets inside of companies. And so that's sort of like point number one. And then I guess beyond that, trying to help companies reimagine the role of their community teams as not just, you know, growth people or support deflection people, but actually folks who can think about a comprehensive set of tools, tactics, and methods for creating value for their community members. And really that's kind of the fundamental distinction, at least for me, between go-to-market and go-to-community, which is go-to-market programs are focused on value capture, which is essential for businesses to operate. But if you can ask yourself, what value can we create for our community? It sort of disambiguates the role of marketing folks versus community folks. So I think that distinction is pretty key. So I'm not trying to take a shot across about the term community-led growth. That term is, it's in the zeitgeist, it's here to stay. But I also think that if we can reimagine the role of community, it, it can be actually bigger than just sort of a growth channel. Let me just kind of jump in here. Reading your article, Patrick, I think one of the things that I took away first, and I want to make sure I, I'm kind of like seeing it how you're seeing it, which is, you know, when people are talking about community-led growth, they see it as like a new type of go-to-market. And I took what you were arguing as like, oh, community-led growth isn't a new type of go-to-market. Instead, community is something that makes any go-to-market you're running better. It is a way to enhance whatever go-to-market you have chosen. Yeah. Yeah. Is that true? Is that kind of how you see it? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, I think that's true of every team. You know, it makes product development easier. It makes recruiting easier, more effective, things like that. So now I think we get to an interesting topic that maybe wasn't part of that article, but I think is the problem most people listening to our show would run into, which is like, oh, there's actually multiple teams that basically make the go-to-market better. You could make the same argument about like operations teams, for example. You could make the same thing about teams that work on the systems that uh, inform the go-to-market or tooling for product organizations, all of those things. And so if you are a business leader, you're a CMO, you're a head of revenue, how do you think about saying like, okay, well, I have some fixed amount of money to bet on the core go-to-market versus the things I think and the infrastructure that's going to improve the go-to-market. So how do you think about investing in community relative to those other areas that you could also get leverage from your go-to-market? I like this question. That's what I would struggle with. You know what I mean? Like this is the hard thing that is like somebody who has a big budget and has to think about capital allocation. It's like, oh man, how much do I spend on QA for my website, which is going to definitely help me scale conversions versus community, which is also going to help me scale conversion rate in a different way at a different part of my go to market. The balancing of those is where I struggle. Yeah. So I, I think you're not alone in that struggle. It seems to be something everybody's talking about and trying to figure out. Like th three of us are fairly smart people. We can figure it out together. How, how are we going to figure this out? One of the great lines you had in here, Patrick, was community is a force multiplier, basically an amplification tool versus a like core new go-to-market. And that's the thing I've been arguing against for community-led growth, that it makes it sound like a brand new go-to-market, and it's not. It's something that actually amplifies the existing go-to-market you have. Kip, your point is there's lots of things that can amplify my go-to-market. 
And how do I choose between the different things that can amplify my go-to-market and stack community up against those things? And community is harder because the minimal viable version of doing QA testing, it's really easy for me to like do a minimal viable version of like a QA testing expense to see the benefit I get in that. Like I can have one QA engineer that works for a week and see the benefit I get in that. Mm. Whereas like to get the benefit of community, I have to build a community. So the minimal viable version of community is like really, really hard. It's really hard for business leaders, but Kip, I think one of the ways you could think about it is the impact of community is much longer lasting, right? Audience is a relationship with your brand and community Mm -hmm. is a relationship with each other that creates amplification for your go-to-market. Like people have relationships with each other. And if you crack that, then the net expense on community versus like that QA engineer, over time, the QA engineer stays stagnant, but the impact from community goes up and the costs actually start to go down because the community starts to actually do a lot of its own work. Like it doesn't need as much moderation. It starts to answer its own questions. It starts to like grow as this kind of organic organism. And so that's one way that I would think about it. How you would actually cost those things up, which you're asking, like, how do I build a return on investment model? Mm -hmm. I think that is hard for community because it's hard to do a minimal viable version. Yeah, exactly. Kieran, let me go back to one of our our old friends on this program, the two by two. (laughs) Let me test the two by two on you (laughs) and see if you buy what I'm selling with this two by two. It's a little bit listening to what you and Patrick have both said over the last few minutes. If we were going to build a two by two that I would call the go to market efficiency two by two, like make your go to market better two by two, is you would want to plot stuff that was short term impact versus long term impact. Yep. That would be the vertical axis. On the horizontal axis, I think you would plot, you know, diminishing returns versus like long tail slash exponential returns, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And so what you're saying is like in a QA engineer, it's like, oh, that is short term, but it's pretty diminishing. One QA engineer makes a huge impact on like the reliability of your website or your free product or whatever that may be. But man, your third, fourth, fifth one, the returns drop off really, really quickly. Where on the community side, that's longer impact, but wow, the return compounds at a very aggressive rate. So once you look at this two by two for everybody listening, you would say, oh, well, first of all, I should not be a maximalist in any one of these areas. I shouldn't be 100% for community or 100% against community or QA or ops, whatever you're going to plot on this graph. But you would say, oh, I actually need to have a decent amount of distribution of my resources and capital across these quadrants and do so in a smart way for where my business is at the time. Right. Like if things are going well and I can take more risk, then put more in that longer term payback, higher return quadrant, where if things are maybe going a little tougher, then, oh, well, how can I find some short-term returns, even if they might diminish pretty quickly after six to 12 months, because I need to get through the next six to 12 months. You two buy that or not buy that? Like, what's your take? I think I buy it. I think it's right on. I mean, the first sort of question of like, how should businesses allocate capital across those quadrants? I do think it depends on the context of of the business. But I think the point that, you know, investments like a QA engineer, just to, to continue with that example, you know, some of these investments are the diminishing returns, they're, they're optimization questions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like maximizing sort of whatever fixed costs we have here and, you know, tweaking or, or eking out additional incremental value along the way versus an investment in community that has, you know, if it goes well, unexpected second, third in order effects that, you know, become self-sustaining over time and create tons of value for the business and the individual. So, yeah. yeah. yeah the minimal viable version of community traditionally in tech has been community a product. Because you actually have inbuilt distribution, right? It's just like customers buy your product and community is at the end of that journey. So you don't really have to worry about how do I get net new community members through all of these third-party platforms. I can just acquire them through the fact that they're buying my software. It has well inbuilt known metrics like case deflection, 
a community maturation where it's like how many people start to answer questions that your customer support moderators do not have to answer within the community. And so that is the most well understood community that has kind of been built within tech. We kind of understand how to do that. I don't think it's as costly because you have an inbuilt distribution mechanism. You understand the metrics and it's kind of tied to overall customer retention, upsells, things like that. The one that's really different for tech companies is community of practice because community of practice puts community before the customer, like them buying your product, like they're a community member before they're a customer member. And obviously we can get to the Web3 thing, but in like traditional Web2, that one I think is harder to wrap your head around and harder to plot out in terms of like, how do I size up the opportunity? How do I think about how this impacts my business? Because, you know, we have a great section here, Patrick, where you talk about the fact that if community is tied to your go-to-market metrics, it may kill the community because your head of revenue is asking meetups to generate revenue versus actually how do I create great meetups that the community get a lot of value from? Like we create value before we extract value. But the other problem with that is if you build community as a side thing, like you build a community as its own kind of like product, right? I have to have, figure out how do I acquire the users? How do I activate the users? How do I keep the users engaged? And I have to do all of the same things to my product. It's really important that I figure out what the bridge is between those two things to get any type of real value, or I'm just building two different products. Like I'm building a product where I have to acquire users, activate users, retain those users. And then I'm building a community where I have to, you know, acquire those community members, activate those community members and retain those community members. So I'm curious about how both of you think about how do you bridge those things together? We've seen some pretty good examples of sort of community of practice leading to community of product. I think the best examples are ones that emerge organically. One example of this is there's a video API called Mux, uh, M-U-X, and they sort of started out of the San Francisco video API meetup or like web video meetup, basically. And that started as a very atomic group of enthusiasts who were interested in video on the web and how to do it more scalably, more efficiently, things like that. Meanwhile, the founders of Mux, who were part of that community, also started a company that was relevant to that community, mm. but they've kind of grown both organically. And if you talk to the founders of the company about this, there's like a firewall between the community and the company. And for them, maintaining the community has been a huge source of brand awareness and, and value driver and all this sort of stuff. But it happened organically and there was already the community there doing great stuff together. Yeah. And what, yeah. what we sometimes see is SaaS companies raising a seed round and then trying to start a relevant community of practice for whatever industry they're in. And they have to just bootstrap the heck out of it from nothing. And it's tough. To your point, it does feel like managing a separate product. Right. So in times where capital is flowing freely, that maybe that strategy makes sense because you can fund a team. But the handoff between the community of product and the, the company itself, yeah, it has to be clear. And sometimes we see it work well and sometimes we don't. Yeah. But I think it works best when it's organically derived from what's happening already. I think we're having an amazing debate and we're tackling some of the hard questions that people really don't talk about when it comes to community. For me, you know, Kieran, you and I are going to do a show in the next week or two all on first principles and the first principles we use to kind of change our lives and the businesses that we, we help and everything. And one of those principles that I think we would talk about is your success is directly dependent on the number of people who want you to succeed, mm, right? Yeah, yeah. Like if once you understand that, mm. once you understand that your success as a person, as an organization is dependent on how many people want you to be successful because, and that want can be for a lot of reasons, because they're passionate about the problem you're solving, because they have some shared incentives for you solving that problem. There are a lot of ways to get there. But once you have that, I'm kind of going to pretend to be a sales rep for Patrick here. Like that is where you start thinking about long, longer term 
community-driven investments because community is the way you facilitate and like address that first principle because you're trying to basically acquire as many customers as possible. But if even if you just have a bunch of customers, they only want you to be successful so they can still be a customer. Like that's okay, but it's not great. It's not that they want you to be successful because like they're gonna build better careers or other things that Patrick's talked about in some of the examples up to this point. So I think what you have to do, if you go back to that two by two, you have to say, if you are a marketer or if you're a business leader and you're saying like, why would I make this investment today? I think you would make this investment today because differentiation and building a competitive moat is everything. And you build that competitive moat through having more people who care about your success than than your potential competitors. And that is why I think you would disproportionately place more of your resources in community versus just like making your website faster and all those other things that you can do that are good and wonderful and you should still do. But they're highly commoditizable. It's easy for everybody else to do that who has time and money. You and I have seen it, Karen. Once you have a real vibrant community, it is a really hard thing to replicate. Yep. Yeah, when you have a real tribe that believes in the things that you believe, like they believe in your purpose before they believe in your product. Yes, and well said. I think there's like there's examples of that type of community having worked really well where people just truly believe in the company's purpose and a community somewhat organically forms around that purpose and the company helps to facilitate and grow that. I was thinking about this recently. Then there are these kind of community of products that just balloon into being a kind of like pseudo community product slash practice Like Notion's a really good example, right? Where the community is inherently built around all of the things that you can do around the product, but it's somewhat like a practice because it's productivity. Mm -hmm. Like how can I be a more productive person? And you have a whole community sharing like all of these tips on how you can be more productive to study, to work, to do all of these different things. Mm -hmm. It's somewhat like a practice, but inherently it's built around that product. And the product obviously lends itself to do that. And so I think you can actually go from product up to practice, but you can go from practice down to product it's less known path to go from practice, like build that community of practice into product. It's just a less common thing that I have seen in tech. Because again, you have to start to build a community around some sort of purpose Mm -hmm. before they ever become a customer, before they ever become software users or users of your product. And that means you have a broader set of competitors. Because when someone's your customer, you're not competing against anyone else just to have a community of product. Like you're the only person that has that product. They're your customers. Community or practice, you're competing against a much broader set of competitors for those people. Yeah, I think this is a really, really good distinction. And when I reflect on the companies that I've seen do well at building a community of practice, it's almost like an even longer term play than community on its own or community for the product because the ones that do it well welcome competitors into that community. And it's it's a rising tide lifts all boats yes. kind of an approach that says, you know, we need more people in the world mm, thinking right. about these problems. It is longer term. It's bigger picture. It takes a lot more investment and belief from the founders, the executive team, the board for doing something like that. On the other hand, we almost see this maturity curve of communities of product morphing in sort of naturally into communities of practice. You know, we, we see it in our community. You know, people come to talk about the API and the feature set. And it turns out there's 25 awesome DevRel people in this channel talking about stuff. And so it just happens automatically where there's, hey, what are you all doing for like streaming? Like, are you going to this event? And, you know, who else is having trouble with online meetups? You know, it, it becomes that. And so we see that with a lot of the communities we work with where there's like a maturity curve of like P1 is like, let's get the power users together to talk to each other. And then let's bring in what we would call orbit level two, which is like kind of people who were not quite power users, but close. And then over time, as more people come in, you naturally see that conversation shifting to a community of practice. So that's a very common thing we see evolve. Talus is a really interesting example 
in terms of what you just said, because obviously Tulsa has this incredibly passionate community. You have people who genuinely believe in the purpose of electric cars for the environment. You have people who love the technology. You have a, a people who are just really big fans of the founder. But back in 2014, you know, in terms of what you mentioned about, you just have to grow the entire category. Elon Musk made all of Tulsa's patents free. He actually said, hey, we're going to give away all of our patents for free because actually we just need more people to build. They originally thought the problem was going to be people were going to come in and just try to copy their technology. And so they had all of these different patents. And he realized the biggest barrier to growth was just competition within the space. They needed people to build more electric cars to actually build awareness of the category and to build a community within that space. And so I think that's an interesting example of a company who kind of did that. Yeah, it's a viable strategy, perhaps a risky and costly one, but especially for emerging nascent categories, you know, making the pie bigger, to use that metaphor, uh, can work. I guess one of the things we should discuss is, okay, I'm listening to this. I'm really on board for building a go-to community team. How is it even structured? Because again, we're talking about it being, you know, an amplifier for the core go-to-market. Is it a self-contained team? Because I think there's different models. There's like a community team like a central community team. And then there's like this model where you would have community decentralized in a bunch of different teams. Like how would we think about even structuring that go to community team? Who owns it? What's the optimal way to build that if I want to build that as a business leader? Yeah. So it can depend a little bit on, you know, size and stage of the company. So for early stage companies, you know, we have a bunch of startups that use Orbit and it's, you know, two people, five people. At those earlier stages, it's really the founders who are champions of, of the community effort. You know, you see that pretty commonly. Your first community hire is, is you know, the founders themselves. And that's important to have the DNA of the sort of community mindset from the early stages, because as you grow the team, you want that thoughtfulness in the approach to every team that gets hired. You know, practically as, as companies grow, we see, you know, typically an early hire community manager or community advocate. They more often than not sit inside of marketing. Sometimes they report directly to the C-suite in some capacity to the founder or things like that. But you sort of, it's probably most common to see them in marketing. And I, I think that's mostly a function of sort of historic norms and expectations, but it's also a function of similar day-to-day, meaning like community folks are, they're using similar tools to the marketers often. They're thinking about messaging and content and things like that. So they often sit in that team. As the company grows, you see a little bit of bifurcation between, you know, community advocates who are kind of your frontline folks who might be hanging out in the Discord server, they're in the forum, they're making sure people are welcomed. You might see a community ops person. The community operations is sort of a role we're starting to see more and more. And this is the result of, you know, bigger teams doing more with data, needing to connect more sources and understand, you know, is this person that RSVP for this event, the same person that's using the product over here and who's the same person that's on social. And, you know, so we're seeing ops people kind of show up more and provide a similar degree of like almost strategic back office functionality you would see from a rev ops person or things like that. And then further specialization often comes in the form of, you know, folks thinking about content, sometimes social, social media and community are often conflated. And depending on the organization, you see either ownership of social inside of the community team or sort of shared metrics around that. So, you know, these folks usually report to a director of community, sometimes a VP of community. There's some examples of like a chief community officer, but that's that's not very common yet. But they're typically self-contained teams reporting into a director or a VP that either sits under marketing, sometimes product, sometimes directly to the CEO. But if you're just getting started, you know, having a single person working directly with the C-suite is a great way to sort of find your footing. I think typically I've seen a community build out of marketing. I think in product for dev 
companies for sure. There's like DevRel mm-hmm. and everything that's for sure. belongs in product and community is much more closely tied to product, which kind of brings me along to, I want to go back to just one point because I know it's one of the ones the listeners want us to hear us make sure we clarified. And I think we started discussing, but I don't know if we actually got the clear picture is that when you actually have a go-to community team and a go-to market, how do you measure the success of your go-to community team? Because I know, Patrick, one of the things you had in your article was, hey, you really need to let them try to acquire community members, keep them active and have their own set of metrics. But obviously, if I'm like the CEO, I'm like, okay, well, what are you doing for me? Like, <laughs> you know, the CEO is like, what is everyone doing for me here? Like, I need yeah, to yeah. see some tangible impact on the business. How do I measure that go-to community team if I want to make sure that they should have their own set of metrics to make sure the community is vibrant and, you know, a great community, but they actually have to have some sort of tangential benefit to the actual core business? Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a question of sequencing of those, the goals and the measurement there. You were getting at this, which is, you know, first order, the community team should be asking, how do we create value? What is the relevant perspective that we can bring to the community to help them get better, smarter, faster, more connected, whatever, versus in a failure case, the community team asking how many leads can we get from the Discord server today? Like that's sort of short-term thinking. So, but you do have to have the connective tissue between the value created in the community and the value captured for the company. And typically what folks do and what we see our users do and what we do is actually map the community output to various parts of the sort of like the funnel, if you will. So, you know, it could be activation, retention, referral, adoption, you know, various parts of that flow and start to understand the relationship between, you know, your most active champions of the community and what the second or third order impact is on the business looks like. It's a sort of an observation question first. So like we have a cohort of, of a thousand really engaged community members that show up for a monthly meetup that are very active with us in the forum and they follow us on Twitter. Like what do they do in the product? Like are they more active? Are they inviting more collaborators or maybe not? Maybe they're amplifying messaging though. And so like, maybe this is a sort of awareness question and we can start to understand that these community members are creating value at the top of the funnel. Or maybe we notice that the conversations in the forum are very focused on how to adopt and use our product. And so now we can start to map community activity to retention metrics and onboarding metrics. And so it's not a panacea, like the makeup of the community is going to be different from company to company. And then sort of like the way it impacts the business will vary. But I think the blind spot many companies have is, is they don't they don't know what the community is producing in terms of conversations, engagement, whatever those metrics are, and they don't know how that relates to the business. And so first thing is just to sort of like observe and have hypotheses around what that looks like. And then from there, you can start to back into metrics. And so you can say, we know that for every, t- this is going to be very simple, but like for every hundred meetup attendees, we know that converts into one trial user. And so now let's do more meetups and let's try to like continue to create value for those meetups because we know that it's going to lead to this part of the funnel and that's where we need to be focused. And so it's sort of a multi-step problem. And this is the complexity of community. I think it's not just a sort of like one tool or one sort of metric to rule them all sort of a question, but the reality is communities are inherently illegible. Like they're all different. They're hard to understand. And so, you know, we're cognizant of trying to help folks think deeply about these things and not just say, well, I need leads. You know, again, that's not very value creative versus taking the time to actually do the mapping and, and see how the community output and impacts different parts of the business. Yeah, it's somewhat bottoms up, right? Like I build my community. I start to see how it has impacted my core go-to-market. I look at the metrics that are interesting, and then I start to see if I can do things that will accelerate those metrics. Exactly. Versus like a lot of what we do in go-to-market is top-down. Like, here's my growth model. I need to move the needle in this metric. Here is the exact playbook that I'm going to run to do that. 
Yeah, and that's what we see working really well. And it, t- it takes observation. It takes diligent conversations with the community team, with the go-to-market team to sort of see what that connective tissue looks like between community outcomes and business outcomes. You know, my hope is that, you know, companies increasingly have the language and the framework to have that discussion versus just, you know, looking at simplistic top-down metrics that may not actually suffice. Yeah, yeah. I would love to kind of close out with Web3. <laughs> we Do you like to talk about Web3? We love the next generation of the web. <laughs> we try not to uh, oversaturate everything with Web3. Web so I wanted to get through all of those things and then go into Web3. But I do think it's like really important to talk about Web3 as part of this conversation because, Patrick, you know, you have a company that's a community product in Web2. How have you thought about Web3, if anything, in terms of change and how you would think about how you service customers are the things that are going to be very disruptive to how people build communities in the future that I need to be cognizant of and start to think about. Yeah. So I would say to think about Web3 is that it, on the surface, can feel very different than some of the fundamental ideas of community we've been discussing because there's different incentives, there's, there's tokens, there's all sorts of mechanisms that could potentially complicate things. For the community managers themselves or for the project, the team behind it, yeah. it's actually quite similar. The, the challenges are similar between Web 2 and Web 3 communities. It's who's the community, what are they doing, on what platforms, who are my champions, who's fading away. It's kind of the same fundamental questions. How do I get people to talk to each other? What value can I provide for them? So at the fundamental level, everything like Web 2, Web 3, it's quite similar. Well, Web3 generally is tough because it it can mean a lot of things. When there's tokens at play and there's incentives, I think it complicates things quite heavily for the core community team because, you know, if somebody's showing up to a meetup about online video, well, they're there to learn. It's pretty clear what their incentives are. If someone's a token holder uh, and they're in a Discord server, you know, are they actually having meaningful conversations with people, whatever that means, or are they there trying to juice the value of the token so they can dump it later on? And so we've seen trust kind of being a problem in Web3 given the sort of maybe misaligned incentives between like actual believers and the project again, quote unquote here, whatever that means versus like speculators. So I think there's an extra layer of difficulty in that context for some other web three projects that are sort of building protocols and like layer one, layer two things. It feels a lot more like a developer community versus like maybe an NFT or sort of a speculative token project. So it's still firming up and forming, but I think fundamentally the community aspect is, is quite similar, but the teams just have to figure out how to navigate this weird thing where the incentives are quite different right. uh, and there's financial outcomes at stake. Yeah. I think when we talk about Web3, it's a proxy for the conversation about around incentives, right? And that's what Patrick is yeah. leading us into is that for any community to be successful, the community has to, one, have clear incentives and those incentives need to be aligned with the company's success so that the company can continue to be a good steward of that community. And in the pre-Web3 days, it was T-shirts and badges and other things that were pretty altruistic in nature, but the people liked and that was cool. And now we're moving to much more like closer to hard monetary incentives. And I think Patrick does a great job here of saying that it just creates a bunch of complexity and challenge when you have real monetary incentives and changes the stakes of that community. The way I think about it is on the spectrum of non-monetary to monetary incentives, the closer you are towards monetary, the lower margin of error you have for things in your community because people are just really going to be really sensitive because it's like, no, 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 you cost me tangible dollars versus like, oh, I did this thing and you rewarded me with a t-shirt that I wasn't expecting and that makes me feel good, right? Like those are two very, very different things. And I think what you and I think, Kieran, is that Web3 is going to transform incentives and communities, but it's not without potential downsides sides and risks right. to it. Yeah. I think companies become more mature in their tokenomics and 
tried to figure out how to better incentivize engaged members and people who, who are already part of the community or who are already like engaged in the community versus bringing in a bunch of speculators. Yeah. Here's a hypothetical question to end with, which I think will bring a bunch of these things together and actually is relevant to some questions that I get asked sometimes by founders. Let's say we were all, you know, an advisor to, I'll, I'll pick a born company, but like a, a data management platform company, right? And like, we really wanted to acquire analysts and I'm the founder and someone comes to me and says, yo, like there's this community where there's 10,000 analysts and they love it. They go to the community, they're in a Slack channel, they talk to each other, they're like educating each other, they go to events and they're like going to these events and getting a ton of value from these meetups. And you can get this for a really good number. You can acquire this and you have the cash in your balance sheet. Do you do that deal? I, I think you might consider it. I think, you know, some of the questions I would ask would be, can we participate in the forum as it stands and provide value and contribute to the conversation? Like, do we need to own the asset or can we support it? Does this thing serve the community better as an independent entity or not? I mean, I guess if somebody's going to buy it, it might as well be us, you know, like if that's sort of the question. But if it's self-sustaining and healthy, the question would be like for the category and for the customers and for the community members, what's going to be better long term? That's one thing I might consider. You know, do I have the capacity to manage and grow this thing and allocate the resources appropriately so it continues to be awesome? Like if it's great, like the last thing I would want to do is acquire the asset and then have it, you know, shrivel. That's very detrimental, I think, to the brand over time. So those are some of the questions I would ask. I mean, it's a fundamental question because there's always the question early on of do I bootstrap my own community or do I go participate in one that's already out there and existing? And so this kind of gets back to a conversation we we're having earlier with early stage companies trying to bootstrap their own thing when there's actually a Slack community over there with 10,000 people in it that's been going for five years and everybody loves it. And so, you know, why not just go see if you can be a helpful member of that community and learn from there. So I'm always biased towards doing discovery, basically the same way you would do product discovery, doing community discovery and taking the time to go in and see what the conversations are like, what the challenges are, what the themes are. And you may find that the sort of theoretical community here is quite good for a certain part of the analyst world, but maybe is missing, you know, some key ideas for another piece. And so maybe there's an opportunity there to start a small event series for this small segment of that community to provide value in different ways. So I think it's a nuanced question, but there's lots of ways to go and learn and provide value independent of you know doing an acquisition. Yep. And so I think a posture of like learning is really essential to mapping out what's going on in that existing community. Kieran, I will chime in here before we close. What's interesting is you gave an example, a fictional example, but there's actually a company, you know, tangentially that took a different approach. So there's a startup that used to be called Fishtown Analytics. Now it's DBT. I don't know if you remember them, Kieran, mm -hmm. but they have the biggest community of like data engineers and data and analytics engineering. And if you go to their website, the very thing on their header is the community. It is how many people in, that's in their communities, mm. the Slack group, certified engineers, all of those things. So if I was going to go back to your original question, would I do this deal? I thought Patrick gave some great feedback around doing your diligence and exploration. Let's say all that stuff came back pretty well. I think you still have to be willing to say, I believe that for my market, community is a defining way to differentiate. And if I'm buying this community, I'm going to make it my key 
point of differentiation, which is going to then force me to invest in the community, do everything that we need to do to be successful. And that's essentially what the folks at DBT have done and done in a really good and smart way. They build the community organically before the product, but you could see taking the same approach in the opposite way. But I think if you're unwilling to do that, then the chances that that community is going to atrophy and not be successful are probably pretty high and you should walk away from the deal. Yeah, well said. I like that because it makes you think more around, is this a point of differentiation and how I'm going to build a company versus how do I like value this thing, right? Because what we've talked about during this discussion is you don't know what a community will do until you're running that community and you're doing some things and then you start to see how to picture numbers. If there's a community that you can acquire, you have no way of like understanding how it's going to impact your business. Like if you tell me, hey, are you going to buy this product-led company and you give me their SaaS metrics and I can pretty much tell you how we should value it and if we should buy it at a certain price. Whereas community is more like, how do we size up the value of this thing to our business pre us owning it? I think your point, Patrick, is really good, which is, do we need to acquire it? Could we partner with it? And I think, Kip, your point is, you would buy it if you think this is truly your a differentiation in how you build a company, like it's part of your entire positioning. It's part of how you actually build the entire business is this community is part of that. The best deals that you can do, whether you're acquiring community, media entities, another company, is where you are very clear on your business strategy and you go and look for the things that are going to help you address and evolve that business strategy versus being like, oh, well, I kind of opportunistically discovered this community and, you know, I could make it work. You know, that latter is not going to be successful. The former is where you're going to be successful. And that's where I would leave everybody with today. And we're about out of time, but I want people to know that be very clear from a business strategy perspective where community sits from you and then make the right internal investments or acquisitions or whatever you may want to do based on that. Don't let it happen the other way around. Yes. This has been an awesome discussion. I feel like we got we snuck a little Web3 in as we always get to do, which is awesome. <laughs> we got to the real nitty gritty of debating ring. how you organize, how do you fund community, all of those things that I think people really struggle with. So I hope everybody listening today found this really helpful. Patrick, Kieran, I would love to give you a personal thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being a good sport as we had a bunch of debates today on Marketing Against the Grain. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, really fun conversation. Awesome. And for everybody listening, thank you so much. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Leave your Twitter handle, your company name. We will shout you out on a future episode. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us how you are investing in community in your own business or give us your community questions. And until next time, this has been Marketing Against the Grain. We'll see you all real soon.